study followed 31 male cyclists, triathletes, and runners, and they compared the athletes' resting me- metabolic race, rate, and then compared it to their predicted metabolic rate. Metabolic. Based, metabolic. Thank you. No problem. Um, on their body size and competi- composition. <laughs> See, now I can't even talk. So, so this, the, this is what happens when we record the podcast in the afternoon, Patrick. Yeah, right? So <laughs> Anyway, keep going. Of the 31 subjects, 20 of them had suppressed blank rates. <laughs> <laughs> metabolic, metabolic. Metabolic, yeah. I'm just messing with you now. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Allinger, also an athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And all-around good guy, right? Some might say, yes. All right, very good. Uh, Patrick, who is getting ready for the Boston Marathon, which is one week away. One week. That's right. right. Are you excited? I am. The hay's in the barn, uh, and now I just hope it remains cold in Boston for one more week. Right. And so we can enjoy this nice winter weather we've gotten to enjoy, I say sarcastically, during the race. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it. Boston's obviously a very special race to me, and it's it's always a fun time. Even As we talked it, about last time at great length, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's funny you say that because I was talking to one of my athletes that I coach who's running the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. and, and just yesterday. And and I said, well, what's the weather look like for that day? And he said, well, actually, it looks pretty good. It's it's 40s and then max of, of like 55 right now. And I was like, that's sort of ideal. Right. That's um, not sort of ideal. I mean, research shows that is ideal, you know, in the 40s. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, fantastic. Um, and so, fingers crossed for you, man. Yeah, and I would say two <laughs> things about the Boston weather. One, the reason that a, a lot of coaches tend to give like a five-minute window for your Boston goal is because, honestly, the weather is it changes so variable that... Mm-hmm. That can have a, a big swing on you, or it can really swing what your goal time is. And second, the weather right now may say it's going to be 42 degrees. It may say it's going to be 42 degrees the day before. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And you almost yeah. have to just wake up that day. It's right there on the water. You know, it's, right it's one of those cities where the weather forecast just doesn't mean that much. Right on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Very good. Well, you're due. Five years, I feel like you're due for some good weather. So and that's what I told the guy that I was I was meeting with yesterday. I was like, well... Patrick, you know, has, has been over five years. He hasn't really had good weather yet, so I think he's due for it now. So, um, very good. Well, so best wishes to everybody who is tapering now for Boston. Um, looking forward to that. Um, this is News and Research Week. So we have a little bit of research and a little bit of news we want to talk about with you and share with you. Things that uh, we noticed over the course of the past week or so that, that uh, we took some things from that we wanted to reflect on a little bit with you. Um, are we starting with news or are we starting with research, Patrick? Let's start with news. All right, so why don't we start with your piece of news because I think yours is... Well, sure. I think they're both fun, but yeah, you, you tell us about yours. So the IAF Half Marathon Championship was a couple weeks ago on March 24th, and uh, it's always an exciting event. And one thing, or and we, I want to start by talking about the guy who won the, the men's race. So Kenya's Jeffrey Kimbrough won the World Championship race in an hour and two seconds, mm-hmm. which is smoking for a half marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, he Going into the race, I believe he was one of the heavy favorites. Uh, he was the reigning New York City Marathon champion. Um, but what makes the race really interesting, what made it fascinating is for the first really 15K, the first 10 miles, they ran at almost a pedestrian pace by world championship standards. Mm-hmm. So just to give you an idea, they opened up the first 5K in 1431. And there are almost 50 athletes in the lead pack. 
So, you're, so if you don't know much about running and you just turn on the race, you may w- watch thinking, what's going on here? Is there like a pace car or a governor on how fast these guys can go right now? Mm-hmm. By the 10K, similar story. There's still about 30 people or so in the lead pack. No clear favorite emerging. Mm-hmm. 15K, same thing. There's about 20 runners or so. And then they hit the 10-mile mark, and that's when Kim Rohr decided, all right, well, now it's time to run, now it's time to race. He turned on the jets and ran the final 5K in a blistering 13.01, <laughs> which is a remarkable split by just about any standards, yeah. which is made even more impressive by the fact that he did it on the road after you know running 10 miles prior. Yeah. yeah. So he finished with a time of, of an hour and two seconds. Um, I mean, he... Finishing the race, there are pictures of him smiling. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, he was just absolutely on fire. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was most interesting about this race, and you and I have talked about this before, both you know on the podcast and just on, on various runs, there's a big difference between running a time trial, mm-hmm. which is like what a lot of us are doing and what I'll be doing in many ways in Boston next mm-hmm. week, yeah. and in running a race and trying to win a race. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he clearly was trying to win a race. He wasn't trying to run his best time. Right. He was simply trying to employ the strategy that would lead to him for him to be the first to cross the finish line right now a somebody who's very systematic in their thinking may say well isn't it best just to run even splits and kind of maximize your time but you know there's a lot of game theory that, that goes into that you know there's a big difference between trying to win a race especially if you're somebody like this guy who clearly has a strong kick mm-hmm. and is probably trying to set up the other runners so that he can you know blister a final a great finish that they can't keep up with right and it's simply trying to run a PR. Right. And this wasn't a PR. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... it's Okay, so so on its face, I think it's really impressive for mm-hmm. a wide variety of reasons. I mean, 13.01 for the last 5K, the be- the road best for, thir- for, for 5K, like the fastest that anybody's ever run in a road race for a 5K, is something like 12.58. Right. Or something like that. I mean, and which which is also blisteringly fast. Don't get me wrong. But... but but Jeffrey Camroer here ran close to the fastest that anybody's ever run for a 5K on the road as the last 3.1 miles of, <laughs> of, a, of, of, of a, a half, half marathon. marathon. Not even of a 10K, right. uh, of a half marathon. And so, so 10 hard miles and then, and then shifts gears. Now, the second reason why it's so impressive to me is, is that shifting of gears. Correct. That, that's a profound shifting of gears. I mean, and so... so um, I mean, some of y'all might be listening to it and say, oh, well, 14.30, 13 flat. I mean, that's not all that big. That's a profound difference mm-hmm. between 14.30 and 13 flat. That, that, is, that is a huge, huge uh, shifting of gears that's taking place there. Um, there's a lot of people that can run 14.30. Um, there's not a whole lot of people that can run 13.01. Right. Um, and uh, and, and to, to, to be able to move from one of those to the other is, is, is pretty st- astounding. Um, pretty incredible. Yeah, and that also makes you wonder. So, I mean, he talked about how he's the reigning, you know, New York City Marathon champion. Mm-hmm. But what I found most interesting about that is that that to me is almost a strategy you would expect maybe from mid, from like a five ker. Yeah, someone who's coming yeah. from the track and saying, "Okay, I've never done this distance before. Let's hope the pace goes out a little slow, and right. then I can just blister a, a fast five k." Right, outkick everybody. Right, mm-hmm. assuming I'm not into oxygen dead at that point. Right. So it, it makes you wonder what it, what all he has left in the tank. A is he planning to, you know, run you know in the upcoming Olympics in like the ten k or something like that, mm-hmm. or is he going to stick with the marathon distance? Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I I think, and we should probably say this right now before we talk a whole lot more about it. Um, we 
we have said on this podcast um, on multiple occasions, and I still believe it even in light of this race, um, there are still things that, that um, there are still many, many, many things that, that we as non-pro athletes and even non-elite athletes can, look, can learn from pro athletes, from elite athletes, about the way that we train, about the way we treat our bodies, even about strategy and races and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, by all means, if you're looking to win a race, you can take a few things about how to go about winning a race here from Jeffrey Kim Moore. Now, obviously, he's the marathon world champion, and he just threw down a 13.01, or half marathon world champion, he threw down a 13.01 at the end of a half marathon. Okay, yeah, we can't mimic that. Right. (laughs) You know, obviously not. Um, And so um, that's, that's, for for, for me, it's important to kind of say, yeah, there are things we can, no, we can't do this, but yeah, there are still things we can take from him and learn Mm -hmm. from him. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Um, And and I think that's kind of an important disclaimer to to, to make there. Um, But yeah, I I think it also speaks to something that we alluded to um, in our Boston Marathon preview episode. We were talking about the way that um, the pro race unfolds there are multiple scenarios that can unfold mm-hmm. um, and that who wins is is determined partially by the way that the race unfolds um, and that's different for say you um, right. or any of the other people that we know that are going to be running in Boston because for you it's more of a time trial because you're not going to be running to win right um, Shalane Flanagan she doesn't really care what time she runs she wants to win this race. She's always wanted to win this race. She 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 grew up in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Winning is the goal for her. Right. Um, and like I said, she said on a podcast I listened to that she's she's training so she'll be fit enough to be able to win in a wide variety of scenarios. That's been like her her mantra. That's been her her training goal. Um, and so it could be that it goes out slow and there's a hard kick at the end. It could be that it goes out fast and and whoever hangs on. I mean, there's could be that that it goes out slow. Then there's a gigantic surge in the middle and then and then hanging on there. Um, and so yeah, the pro the way the pros race, um, there is as many things as we can take from the way the pros train and the and the and and the way the pros treat their bodies. Um, the way the pros race is is bound to be a little bit different from the way that you're going to race next week. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and it, it's interesting too. And one. One thing I can say too is one takeaway that we can't have as you know runners that are not going to split a thirteen oh one at the end of a uh, half marathon. That's Although actually, I hear one of our own actually did that at the Swanee half marathon when they oh, took them off course. Yeah, oh, yeah, so yeah, no I, kidding. <laughs> yeah. For, for the, the, so between the let's just say between the nine mile mark and the finish, he really blistered the uh, the end there. That's right. Except that you know from the nine mile mark to the finish, he ran about two and a half miles. But anyway, <laughs> keep going. Um, but one one takeaway there is that, that I think we can't have is I'm always a big fan. You know, people always ask me, well, should should I bank time? Mm-hmm. Or what if I go out too slow, do I ruin the rest of the race? And my response is always, if you have it, it'll still be there at the end of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, I'm always big on going out. Conservative may not be the right word, but go out at a pace that you know you can hold mm-hmm. from, for the entire race. And then if you, if you set your goals too low, you can always speed up at the end. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've gone out too fast, that's obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does kind of... I would say his race kind of, you know, just adds one more kind of piece of evidence that you can always speed up at the end of the race, mm-hmm. contrary to mm-hmm. to what, what some people who are maybe new to running mm-hmm. might not understand or might not know. Yeah. Now, now to push back against that a little bit, I, I agree with you. To push back against that a little bit, not every, I mean, he ran 13.01 and one. So, 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 so all the other people he went out with, those 50 people that were together at the 5K mark, you know, he's the only right. one that was able to actually, you know, finish that strong. So... You know, so so so, but 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 your point is well made. That that still, despite the fact that 
despite the fact that, that he started slower than, than, than one would expect, he was still able to, to come on strong and finish and win the race. Um, this is the way, by the way, that, that championship races are won. Yes, it is. Um, as, as you and I both know, having been in championship races before, um, it doesn't matter what your time is in a championship race. Um, even at, even at like a major race, like, like the Boston Marathon, um, if, if Shalane Flanagan won the race in three hours and 30 minutes, it doesn't matter. She would still be the champion. Now, if she runs three hours and 30 minutes, she's not going to win the race, obviously, but, (laughs) but, but it doesn't matter. She would still be the Boston Marathon champion 2018. Right. Um, and so a lot of times you'll see pros who, who are contending for championships will train in this fashion, um, that particularly track racers. Um, that uh, they will they will train to close really really fast. You, you know Matt Centrowitz, who won the fifteen hundred at the two thousand sixteen Olympics um, from the United States. He uh, he trained with this in mind. I mean, used to used to run these blistering quarters, uh, quarter mile repeats at the end of all of his workouts in order to prepare for a blistering final quarter in the fifteen hundred. Uh, and that's exactly the way the race unfolded, and he won. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason why I could, why I never was ACC champion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know the, the the race I should have been ACC champion in. Um, it went out really, really slow. And like a moron, I let it go out too slow. But it was a windy day, so I had an excuse. And then with 1,200 meters to go, um, one guy really forced the pace and blasted out. Uh, and I finished third. Just because mm-hmm. two other guys had more finishing speed over the rem- the, the last 1,200 than I did. You know? mm-hmm. um, looking back on it, like we all have that one race that we wish we could run all over again. That's my one race. Yeah. yeah that, that's the one where I'm like, dang. Yeah. Um, I can, I can look back and say, yeah, I was all ACC, but I can't look back and say, yeah, I was ACC champion. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, highest ever finish was second. Great. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. No, and, and but you bring up a good point, too. There's a big difference. So I talked about the, the merits of, of starting out slower if you're not sure what your, your finish time is going to be and you're kind of nervous about hitting your time. Uh, there's a big difference between trying to hit your time and t- trying to win the race. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you take it out too slow and you're trying to win the race, mm-hmm. the problem is there's maybe not necessarily like at your local road race, but mm-hmm. definitely like at a, at a ACC track meet. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know what Joker is going to stick around and then bust out a quick right. final 800 because they're just a great 800 meter runner. Right. So, you know, it's 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 definitely a different strategy in in terms of hey, I'm running a road race. Um, you know, a, a teacher, and now I'm running on the side versus mm-hmm. I'm running an ACC track meet. And all right, I got to figure out how quickly can I take this out yeah. so that I can make sure folks aren't sticking around. Because yeah. that was always yeah. my strategy. I could never, I never had the kick. Yeah. So had yeah. I been in that race, I'd have been in the same boat as you. I still don't, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and certainly not at age 43. I'm not, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a great kicker. Nope, don't have it. Um, uh, just don't have it. Uh, very good. Well, let me uh, let me tell you about my piece of news. Um, I want to talk about a guy named Caleb Neff, um, and uh, that some of y'all might be familiar with. Um, if you follow like ultra racing, he does a lot of ultra races. And uh, last year, he uh, he uh, set the world record in a marathon pushing a stroller. Um, he's the world record holder in both the stroller half marathon and the stroller marathon. Uh, ran a two thirty one marathon pushing a stroller last year. Good heavens! Um, yeah. So clearly, you know, a very strong runner. Um, he is, uh, he's training for the Comrades Ultra Marathon this summer, um, and he was training back this fall for the Houston Marathon in January, which he has run several times. Um, and last November, he was hit by a truck, um, and the truck hit him on his right side, um, and it, he kind of flew up in the air. He jumped up, and as soon as he saw he was about to get hit, he kind of jumped into the air thinking that would protect him, and then knocked him onto the ground, um, 
he got up, the guy in the truck got out and, and ended up driving him back to, to the local running store where he had started his run. Um, and then a few hours later, he started feeling, okay, something's not right. So he went to the ER. Um, and by the way, looking back on it, he said, I, we should have called the police in the emergency right then. Um, but, um, uh, and he found out he had a, a, a broken fibula, a broken left fibula. Um, and so he missed the Houston Marathon and had to run a whole lot on an Ultra G. Spent a lot of time cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on Zwift, which is something that I know that a lot of folks that listen to the podcast use, uh, and spent spent a lot of time riding his bike on Zwift, um, and then started running on Zwift as well, um, and uh, and and kind of slowly began to train again. Um, put in, he said, he said, put in 280 treadmill miles in the month of February. Um, and then on March 3rd, um, he went out for a local marathon, the Woodlands Marathon. He was planning to do it kind of as a long run as part of his comrades' ultra running or ultra marathon training. And he, looked, he said he looked around on the starting line and realized that, hey, wait a second, I might be able to win this race. Um, so he took his headphones out um, and he blasted out from the gun and he ended up running 230 and winning the race. Um, so yeah, hit by a car in November, wins a marathon in March. So solid work there by Caleb Neff. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say about it? That's incredible. I think so. There, there's so many takeaways. One, I mean, that's a significant injury. Oh yeah, uh, broken bone, man. Broken bone and a and a pretty big one too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the fact that he was able to come back four months later and run a marathon is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And I would say, in general, that's something most people probably could not pull off. Mm-hmm. Kudos to him. Yeah. Second, I think one one of my favorite parts of that story is the fact that he was at the start. <laughs> and then decided it was go time and took out the he- headphones. Yeah, you know. So and he, and he and he 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 said he led from the start. Did he really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so so it wasn't even it wasn't even like he got a mile into it and was running comfortably with lead pack and said I might be able to win. He he literally looked around and then he bolted out from the gun. Right. Um. And and, and took the W. And he was probably good enough that he knew. All right. Here are the people in my area right. who's good enough to beat me. Right. Oh wait, these three aren't here. They're not oh. here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I and, and I imagine and I, don't, I he didn't talk about this in the article that both you and I read, but but um I imagine it was very redemptive for him. Mm-hmm. You know. Um. Um, even though he didn't set out to to run hard that day, um, he decided to go ahead and run hard, and I, I imagine that was that's an important thing in his psychological recovery. Yes, um, from this this very heavy accident. Um, you know, having been run over by a car, I can say the one thing I think that all of us who survived getting run over by a car can say is that as tried as it sounds, it could have been worse, mm-hmm. and I, and I think that's a very unsettling thing. Um, and it was clearly unsettling for him. I mean, he said, you know, he ran 280 miles on the treadmill in February, right? Mm-hmm. And that was partially because the treadmill was more forgiving and softer, but it was also because because he was probably worried about going outside again, right? You know, and and, and being amongst the traffic. Um, and so, so um, I imagine that that yeah, that was probably a very redemptive thing for him, given that that he's probably been under some some pretty heavy psychological distress over the course of the last little while here. Um, so kudos to him. Um, not for nothing, by the way, the, the winner of the women's race was a woman named Camille Heron, um, and she's training for the Comrades Ultramarathon. She's won the Comrades Ultramarathon, um, and uh, and she last year set a record, um, a world record in the 100-mile distance. Mm-hmm. Um, she was wearing a pair of Nike 4% shoes when she was doing it, um, but um, uh, and she happened to be the, the, the women's winner of the Comrades Marathon and is training for it as well, so... Um, so yeah, two people who are training for the Comrades Ultramarathon both win the Woodlands 
Texas Marathon. So yeah, if anybody's on the path to the Comrades Ultra Marathon, maybe it goes through Woodlands, Texas. <laughs> yeah, maybe we know where your next marathon is. So, so yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I was joking with Patrick as we were talking about this before the race. The Comrades Ultra Marathon is is my my single bucket list race, if you will. Um, it's the one race that that if you said, hey George, you can only run one more race. You won't get injured as you're preparing for it, but just one more race around your life. What, what's it going to be? It would be the Comrades Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always wanted to do it, and I, I never have. Um, and I don't know if I ever will, but, um, yeah, it would be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, you, you talked about kind of the, the courage it takes to work up to get back on the road, and that's, I mean, that's very real. Yeah. Um, did, did you ever suffer from that, like, after your accident? I mean, well, yours was on a bike, I, but... I, I haven't been on back on the road on mm-hmm. my bike, you know? I haven't. Um, and so, so yeah, I still suffer from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Well, I would say, yeah. running-wise, did you ever find that you were kind of looking both ways a bit more maybe a bit more timid or that's a good question and i don't know i um um i don't think so i think i've run so much and it feels so different you know that 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 i just never quite felt that way um i do think it's interesting i was talking to to Haley chura one time um who who was run over by a car just a few weeks after i was as a matter of fact and she still largely does a lot of her training in, indoors um, but she has gone back outside and she's raced outside and she's actually racing really well. Um, and, uh, and she said that when she would go back outside, a car would be coming in, in the other direction and, and she would have those kind of, those kind of moments. Is this, is this car going to hit me? You know? Right. And, and the hair on the back of your neck yeah. starts to raise. And yeah. And, and I know, I am certain that I would feel that way. Right. I would, I would, I would be, I would ride very tentatively and it would not be a whole lot of fun and. Yeah, I just yeah. So 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 no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is you know kind of a terrible thing. Riding your bike's fun, man. Uh, mm-hmm. But but yeah. Yeah, and to me, that's what makes this story so interesting. Is that it, it's amazing. I mean, it, it, even if most folks have not been hit by a car and then run a race four months later, but we do have a lot of experiences running and outside of running where mm-hmm. something happened and then we had to get back on the horse, so to speak, yeah. or get back on the bike, or get yeah. back on the road. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that he had to kind of work his way back to this this end goal to me was just fascinating mm-hmm. to me another thing I, I really just found as I was clicking around he actually posted on Twitter the night before the race he said hey need to get some pre-race sleep uh, tomorrow's more of a training day don't want to go so fast that I can't train the next day <laughs> and then he ended up winning so yeah, yeah. I thought that there actually is like proof on social media <laughs> that he was he was not going to race it right right makes me wonder if he ended up training the next day <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Let me just scroll down to his exactly, Twitter yeah, for yeah, the next exactly. day. Let's look, look, look at his look at his, uh, his his Strava profile and see what he's doing <laughs> the next day. Um, you know, and, and and not to not to circle back around to the depressing part of the story. Um, yeah, I, I was run over at the same time as two other guys, mm-hmm. is Eddie Ferguson and and Joseph McLeod. And um, Eddie had Kona just a few months later, and so he in some ways was forced to get back out there. Right, and he did, and then he rode mostly group rides, and now he just doesn't anymore. Um, and, and then Joseph McLeod rides now back outside as much as he ever did. And for him, part of the redemptive experience was saying, I'm not going to let the fear that was, uh, inspired in me by this person who ran me over, stop me from doing something that I love and care about. Right. Um, and I think that's fantastic. I admire him a lot for that. Um, but that's, I, he's in a different place than me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes you never know how somebody's going to react. You don't know how even you will react you know, yeah. to something like that. For sure. For sure. Um, 
let's talk about uh, let's change the subject here. So, so congrats by the way to uh, both Jeffrey Kim War and Kalen Neff winners and Camille Herons, as you mentioned her as well. Who was the winner of the women's race? It was Jocelyn. Oh, I'm, I am scrolling up. Sorry, I had uh, it. Jocelyn Jepkuski. So right? she was yeah she was she was up there. She was one of the favorites. Mm-hmm. It actually ended up being won by Ethiopia's Netsanet Gudetta. Right on. So um, so, so, so she won with a time of one oh six eleven. That's a solid time. For, That's a for, yeah, for very good time. Race, yeah. So so congrats to uh, to to the four of them on their race wins uh, last month. And just a quick side note: that race went completely different. That one, the, right. there were there were two big moves at the nine k and the fifteen k. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's that's much more systematic at you know right. roughly the the right. you know much sooner in the race than just an all out kick like the male version, right, the male right. race. And it goes to show how pro races and races where you're, you're you're running for the win can can unfold very differently from one another. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, let's talk about a little bit of research. Um, do you want to talk about yours first or me? Uh, go ahead, since All I right. start off the news. All right, so, so good idea. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk about two pieces of research here. Now, I've been reading this book lately um, called Run Strong, Stay, Help, uh, Stay Hungry. Uh, it's by a guy named Jonathan Beverly. Um, and Jonathan Beverly was, a, was a, uh, a writer for Running Times, and then he was a writer for, for, for Runner's World. Um, and he actually wrote an article with uh, Andy Palmer, it was in Running Times about 20 years ago, literally. Uh, the two of them wrote it together. And um, Andy Palmer, um, and so I ended up having some, some Andy Palmer, as you'll recall, was, was, he was my coach for a little while. And then he started Zap Fitness and then, then of course, died um, uh, before Zap Fitness really got off the ground. And Pete Ray talked a little bit about that when, in, in our interview with him. Um, but yeah, I ended up corresponding a little bit with Jonathan Beverly uh, when Andy died. Because because mm-hmm. I, I wrote to him and said, hey, Andy's been my coach, and I hired him as my coach based on this article that you and him wrote together back in Running Times, mm-hmm. um, you know, five years ago. So, can you tell me who's going to be my coach now? <laughs> and, and, and he and I ended up kind of trading like, some email about that. Dot, dot, um, dot. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, which makes me sound. By the way, I realize as I'm saying that it makes me sound extremely callous. Um, that wasn't and, the only thing you said. Yeah, the, no, yeah, yeah no. I, I also <laughs> you know said, said that, but but um, that was after the appropriate but, condolences. But yeah, yeah. time. Um, so, but anyway, um, so he wrote this book, Run Strong, Stay Hungry, um, and and it has Dina Castor on the front, who's you know one of my favorite runners. Yeah, um, doesn't have Shalane Flanagan on the front. Uh, and uh, Tar Heel. And, and, uh, <laughs> that's right. It is this kind of putrid Tar Heel color, though. But anyway, now um, back to your original point. Did uh, Shalene Flanagan ever win ACC championship? So yes, she won NCAA championships. Thanks but, for refreshing uh, my memory, bud. Uh, right, whatever. <laughs> um, um, anyway. Um, but the uh, the subject of this book um, is is about what he calls lifelong competitors, mm-hmm. uh, and it's about people who who uh, after twenty five, after thirty, after fifty years in running, they're still like doing workouts and still like digging digging deep and running fast and racing and stuff like that. And so so it's not just lifelong runners, but it's lifelong competitors. Um, and he interviews a whole bunch of them, and he basically distills. And- Real quick, before you even get yeah. going, I'll just sort of say, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, and I, t- I talk to a lot of new runners who've been doing it for mm-hmm. several years, Yeah, you know, a lot of times you're improving your first seven years of running. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even put a number on it for the first number of years running, mm-hmm. just because it's something new. Right. It is really hard after 14, 50 years of oh, grinding yeah. away at 5 a.m. practices mm-hmm. to continue to grind when you're not seeing improvement. Well, and, th- and that's kind of the reason why, why I ended up reading the book, um, and the reason why it stood out to me is because I'm at age 43. Mm-hmm. I don't have any PRs left of me. It's right. just not going to happen. I don't. Even, I'm not even close. Like right. if I, if I run 
if I go out and run a five, I'm signed up for a 5K in a few weeks. It's mm-hmm. my first race back after my injury after Chicago Marathon. So um, if I go out, um, or if I were to go out and run two minutes shy of my 5K PR, so 40 seconds per mile slower than my 5K PR, I would consider that to be a brilliant race. Brilliant race, given, given that I've been injured. Right. Um, if I was 40 seconds per mile slower than my PR. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so, so I am kind of interested in longevity. And this idea of longevity. And I talked about it a little bit in the podcast last year when we talked to Eddie McCoy. Um, and and I'm, I'm still kind of interested in it. But anyway, so he distills all the lessons he can take from these lifelong competitors into what he calls nine keys to staying in the race. Um, and the book kind of started off a little bit rough, I was telling Patrick, because it started off by him saying, okay, let's talk about the reason why people quit. And so... <laughs> it's a real inspiring guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so the, the first... the first What's the opposite of a success story? Yeah. You know? The first chapter is filled with whatever the opposite of a success story is. Right. It's filled with the opposite... It's filled with, with oh, wait, well, this guy quit running because of this. And this guy quit running because of this. And all these people get... And I'm like, oh, my God. Jonathan Beverly, throw me a bone here. Give me something to inspire me to keep on going. Right. Um, this is too much for a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then um, you know, I want something uplifting before bed here. Um, but he, he eventually started getting into these nine keys. And the first one he was talking about was consistency. And, and of course, that's something that we've talked about before. And that's the golden rule of, of endurance training is, you know, consistency pays more than one big workout and that sort of thing. And, but he was talking about consistency and how it looks for people who are these lifelong competitors. And in that, he mentioned a couple of studies. So, like I said, I was getting around to the research here. Um, and they kind of go together uh, and they were in the same journal, and they were both in, in 2016. And in a lot of ways, they have at least temporarily upended a lot of my thinking about resting and, and periodization and all that sort of thing. And so you're going to hear a lot of thinking out loud here because I haven't actually really settled in my head yet. And hopefully Patrick will be able to, to help me articulate a few things. But um, the first one was by uh, a group of researchers led by a guy named Hewlin. Uh, they were out of Australia. Um, and they had the extremely long and very descriptive title, Low chronic workload and the acute chronic workload ratio are more predictive of injury than the between-match recovery time. A two-season prospective cohort study in elite rugby league players. That was the title of the study. I think they need to reread Shrunk and White's The Elements of Style. Maybe. That title was longer than that whole book. Uh, yeah, no. The, 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 the title, like, you don't even, you don't even need the abstract. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so in that study, um, they showed that, that athletes who maintain a steady high load of stress are less likely to get injured than those who have less volume of training. Um, and if you if you increase your weekly load diet by 20% more than the average of the past four weeks, so 20% the average four, four weeks, um, you increase your injury slightly, and then that risk becomes three to five times greater if you have a spike of 50 to 60%. And so in other words, what they're saying is that that it's not about your volume, it's about the spikes in your training. Mm-hmm. That, that um, if you're running, say... 70 miles a week, and you're running 70 miles a week, running 70 miles a week, running 70 miles a week, that's not necessarily going to get you injured. It's when you spike up to 120 miles a week that you could potentially get injured, right? But by the same token, running 70 miles a week, running 70 miles a week, 70 miles a week, you take a month off, you run 20 miles a week, then you try and go back and say, okay, now I'm going to run 70 miles a week. That's actually a more dangerous situation than if you had just run 70 miles a week through that month and just kept up that, that high, high load, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was on rugby players. It wasn't on runners, so it was a little bit different. But but obviously that, that that's pretty striking. Um, yeah. And then kind of the other piece of research related to that, and and again, this is kind of what's messing my head. Um, um, it was by a guy named Gabbett, and and like I said, it was in the same uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was also in 2016. It came out like a month later. Um, uh, he wrote one called "If Overuse Injury Is a Training Load Error, Should Undertraining Be Viewed the Same Way?" Um, and basically, in that, he said, "Quote." Labeling these injuries as overuse may encourage athletes to reduce their training unduly, thus exposing them to tissue, to, thus exposing their tissues to deconditioning or an inconsistent loading pattern, which have been associated with injuries. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, he's arguing that that again, take that seventy mile per week runner. That seventy mile week runner takes a month of only running twenty miles a week. Your 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 tissues will decondition thus putting you at a greater risk for injury once you start training again at the higher level and at the higher load. Interesting. And and like I said, this has kind of messed me up a lot. Because, because and I'm I'm very, and I admit to this, I'm very bingy-purgy when it comes to running. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that it's kind of all or nothing type thing. And so so it's like, all right, so so you've run your marathon, um, you know, and you, you, you have your peak weeks, you got up to your marathon, now let's take a break. And you need to recover. You need to recover physiologically. You need to recover psychologically. You need to recover financially, logistically, you know, emotionally. Right. All, all these things need to recovery. And so I'm a big advocate of just not doing a whole lot for a little while. And what this is suggesting is that that might actually be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And that when you resume training, you're at a higher risk of injury than you would be if you had, had not wound down your training entirely. Um, or if you... You're at a higher risk for injury, yeah, than if you hadn't wound down your training. Yeah. Like I said, I'm a little twisted. Yeah. Um, tell me what you think. So, I think where it can make sense, and it's hard to know exactly what they did for the, the study since it was like rugby mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think you should run a marathon and then run a 5K a couple weeks later. Right. Um, so, I don't think you can keep high-intensity efforts mm-hmm. steady. Like a like a marathon race mm-hmm. or a half marathon. Well, maybe like a half marathon race, like once a month or so. Mm-hmm. But I can see where they say, look, you you need to kind of keep the easy mileage to keep kind of your your tendons and ligaments kind of strong, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But there's a big difference between doing like thirty miles a week of easy mileage and the seventy of like a peak. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, I noticed, so I, I will say this, too, in my own experience, and I'm not really sure how this works into all this. So, like, in college, we're doing probably a little bit more mileage than we do now for marathon training. Mm. But the difference is the number of fast mileage is increased tenfold in college, mm. right. right? So the injury rate's through the roof because it's not so much about the number of pitches you throw. It's about the intensity of the pitches. Mm. You know, you can throw... You can run a bunch of miles as long as you're not blasting off the line and mm-hmm. really kind of putting a lot of stress in your calves and Achilles, which then have trickling effects. Mm-hmm. I wonder where that comes into play, too. Like, I wonder how many intense miles mm-hmm. were done in this study. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was with rugby players, and so the way that they measured training loads mm-hmm. in, the, in the initial study mm-hmm. um, was, was by hours of practice. Okay. Right? And so, so they say if they practice 15 hours a week, or something mm-hmm. like that, which is the way that triathletes tend to measure training load, right? Mm-hmm. So working out 15 hours a week. Um, and, and so if they work out 15 hours a week, they said, okay, if you average that over the course of four weeks, they average 15 hours over the course of four weeks, mm-hmm. if you increase that by 20% the next week, you slightly increase the injury rate. But if you increase it by 50 or 60%, so, so they do 22 hours worth of work one week, 
that's actually subjecting them to three to four times greater injury rate or injury risk than they would have if you had just left it at 15. And like I said, I mean, there, there's, there's also a very common thing, in, particularly in triathlon, um, where you have like a so-called crash week or a camp week mm-hmm. where, where you, you're training at 15 hours a week and then, and then you take one week and you do like 25 hours that week. And then you kind of go back down, and, and, and I mean that's very common. Joe Frio calls them crash weeks, right? Um, and and this kind of seems to, to suggest that that the injury rates from doing that are are dangerous. Um, and like I said, for me, it, it gets me twisted more when I think about resting and the nature of rest and all that sort of right. thing. Right. And and by the way, I I'm wrestling with this, but but don't anybody interpret this as me thinking, okay, well now it's okay for you to go out and just keep on training at the same level immediately following your marathon. Like you still need to recover. Right. Um. But I, but I think I am rethinking a little bit more about the nature of recovery, and more than that, like the way that you come back from recovery. Right. And so, like if you do that, if you're that 70 mile a week runner, and then you cut it down to 20 miles a week. You can't just go back to 70. You need to go to 30, then 40, then 50, then 60, then 70. Right. Right? Um, and so, so yeah, I, like I said, I mean, this is one of those articles and, and one of those studies that I'm, I'm certainly willing to share because I think it's super important, but it does kind of run counter to some of the things I've said on this podcast before. <laughs> yeah, and um, I would say, too, that the, I think you called it the, the binge and purge nature of, of marathon and triathlon training. Yeah. I think that, to that nature, too, I think, comes from two sources primarily, maybe not saying your life, but in, in mm-hmm. general. One, a lot of folks train for a marathon because they have some event in their life mm-hmm. and they decide, you know what, I want to run a marathon to make a change mm-hmm. or to achieve something new. Mm-hmm. So then when you're running a, a, a marathon plan for somebody who's totally new, then it is just like step one. So you just kind of are, are going yeah. up and up and up and up. Yeah. And then once you've survived, you kind of have to crash. Mm-hmm. And then recalibrate and start to think, how can we make a sustainable plan for, mm-hmm. for years to come? Mm-hmm. And then second, the kind of binge and purge mentality comes from the fact that we have other things going on, just like you mentioned. Yeah. It's not so much a physical need as much as a, an emotional need. Yeah. Like once I, so you know, I have Boston in a week, and I have things I'm literally on my schedule that I'm like, the two weeks after Boston, I'm not running because I have to do other stuff. Yeah. I have other areas of my life yeah. I have to tend to. <laughs> Yeah, and, and by, and by and, the same token, like that, that guy that I was talking to yesterday, the athlete that I coached talked to yesterday, right. he's going on vacation in July, which is about two months before an Ironman he's doing. He's like, that can be like this really intense, I can do a lot more training because I'm not going to be working. Right. And he's like, he's like so I want to make this into a traincation. And I, I'm like, all right, we can do this. This, And now I'm kind of, I'm not rethinking that because right. he's still going to train a lot during that time because he can, but, but I'm definitely rethinking the, the four or five weeks prior to that. And mm-hmm. I need to set him up for it a little bit more. Right. You know, he's not going to be so doing seven a, hours and then doing 15 hours. Like, I need to set him up a little bit better for that. Right. So it's more of a bump than a spike. Right. 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 Yeah. And actually, that, and, and, and I think that's, I'm glad you said that, um, more of a bump than a spike. Um, and we mean that in colloquial terms, not in volleyball terms. Right. Um, but, good, good, good call. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. For all those volleyball players that are listening to us right now, you know, we, we want to make sure they don't misunderstand our metaphors. Um but uh, but but yeah, I think more of a bump than a spike, and and that's important. It also it, it does also it makes me feel better about the fact that I've been reco- re- returning to running extremely cautiously mm-hmm. and extremely carefully over the course of the past few weeks, and it makes me feel better about the fact that I've been been, been so cautious about that. Right, because <laughs> I think when we talk about like injury rates, I, I know for at least when I was like in high school and kind of learning about this stuff, 
I always thought more mileage equals higher injury rates. And I almost mm-hmm. thought it was like a yeah. point or like a direct correlation. Right. But it's not so much about how many miles are you running. It's how quickly are you increasing the mileage. Right. Exactly. Um, like me and you have put in, you know, 60, 70 miles a week for years and years. Mm-hmm. So even after the marathon, I can kind of bump back up to it relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um because we we've done it. kind yeah. of that structures in place with the the ligaments, the joints, the the kind of the bone density things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something you have to always consider: is how quickly yeah. are we increasing? Yeah. And that also gets to one of our big points we always make is you have to put in the miles, but you have to do it slowly and consistently. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's not as contradictory to all the things that, that I thought was contradictory to. Um, yeah. And and then the 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 idea too that that when you're you know, we always tend, I always tend to think of, okay, so when are you most at risk of injury? Mm-hmm. Um, I always tend to think of you're most at risk of injury immediately following your marathon or immediately right. following your Ironman or something like that because because you're tired and you're worn out and you cashed in all this fitness and, and all that sort of thing, right? Um, this tends to suggest that you might actually be more prone to injury or your most injury-prone times is not right then, but it's actually four weeks later. Right. Five weeks later, or whatever it is, when you start ramping your training back up again, looking towards your next goal. Right. Um, and so, so like seeing, sort of seeing that window of time as as a pretty important time in which you could potentially create some injuries. I think that's a, that's an important insight from from these two pieces of research. Yeah, yeah it is. And you, if you think about it, most people when they run the marathon, the marathon is a lot longer than any training run they've done consistently. Oh yeah, it should be. Um. Yeah. So. Then when you look at it that way, maybe the marathon is what kind of sets you up for the, the injury. Mm-hmm. And then you got to kind of play it by your, you're kind of already on the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, it, the recovery part of the marathon training is mm-hmm. just as risky mm-hmm. as those final few mm-hmm. weeks heading up to the marathon, yeah. if not more risky. And then, and then but, the, but the, the window extends into when you started running again. Right. Um, yeah. For weeks. So, yeah, yeah. At, w- at which point you want to bump, not spike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, all right, man. Tell us about your research. Sure. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So you talked about kind of the, the long-term health of, of competitive athletes and competitive endurance athletes. So mine looks at um, the long-term health and endurance athletes. And it's a study that essentially says, and I'll get into the, the details here in a second, that it's more important to consider, or is it, it a, is as important to consider when you eat as much as it is to consider how much you eat. So okay. we've, we've all heard about the counting calories and about how, you know, it's kind of a math problem when you're looking at, mm-hmm. you know, what you should be eating and how much exercising you should be doing. Um, but this, this study looked at when you eat and at what effect that has on recovery and endurance athletes. So one of the points that's hammered home by... Wait, when, when did this study come out? What's the date on it? Uh, a couple, I believe February of this year. Of this year. And so, so this is a new one then. Because mm-hmm. that's important because this is... Mm-hmm. We, there's a reason why we haven't done a nutrition podcast <laughs> yes. because because it's it, it's it's contentious and i did talk about sugar on this podcast one time but yeah the, the field of nutrition science is in a difficult place right now yeah um, and so anyway but uh but go ahead and talk about it go ahead and let me also say too this is one of those little nuggets as, as you kind of alluded to nutrition is very difficult and it's also very individual yes so uh, this is a, a study that, that paints a very general picture. Mm-hmm. However, if you have a specific medical condition, you know, pay attention to that first and foremost, yeah. more so than, than what's being painted in, the, in this study. Mm-hmm. But, one, but one of the points that was kind of hammered home in, in the, the sports nutrition literature in the 1990s was the idea of after you complete a workout, 
you need to eat a lot of carbs quickly mm-hmm. in order to kind of absorb those carbs more right. efficiently, right? That was something that, that we kind of heard in the 90s quite a bit. And in fact, mm-hmm. there's a study in 1998, or 88, excuse me, that found that an athlete replenishes fuel stores 75% quicker when immediately, eating immediately after workout as opposed to eating like two hours later. Right, right. And where that, I think that's that's kind of interesting for adult athletes is if you are like me or if anybody listening is like me, you know, I'll run at Lakeside High School at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. and then I drive to work and shower and I might eat breakfast. I might not. It depends on what my meeting schedule looks like. Mm-hmm. It depends on how fast I get in and out of the the workroom shower and locker room. Mm-hmm. So it, when I look at, looked at this study, it was interesting to kind of figure out, okay, is this something I need to reevaluate? Yeah. Well, so, so that and... We're, we're like totally building up whatever the study says, by the way. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> it better be good, dude. Um, but but that study you mentioned from 1988 and the group of studies around it, um, and that idea that you needed to replenish carbohydrate stores, mm-hmm. um, that that essentially fueled the boom of recovery drinks. And recovery drinks have changed the formula over the course of the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of like drinking something immediately following your 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 workout, your long run. Um, you know, Twin Lab had this stuff called Ultra Fuel, and it yes. was 400 calories in a bottle, and and it was essentially supposed to be a, a recovery drink, and it was entirely carbohydrates. Yeah. Um. So there was no protein involved in whatever whatsoever. So the idea was that that you were you were trying to replenish those those depleted carbohydrate stores, and you're. I I, even, I remember the article I read in Runner's World about it, and it was talking about Mark Plachez, who was a marathoner, yeah. um, and talking about how he ate a whole bunch of fruit after his long run, uh, and it said that that your muscles are like sponges when 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 you're done with your long run, and they soak up the carbohydrates so much better if if you've taken Ooh, within that first this two hours. This person has a uh, um, future in marketing. So right, yeah, that's probably what the person's doing now is is marketing. But anyway, keep going. So anyway, so this research kind of wanted to dig a little deeper into that idea of timing your nutrition, mm-hmm. right? So what they did is they investigated if an athlete is getting enough calories to meet their needs each day. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that they still might be suffering from negative health effects if they spend too many hours in a caloric deficit? Okay. Right. So you exercise, yeah. you don't eat, you go to work, you have meetings, then you have like a 1 o'clock PBJ for lunch, which mm-hmm. is exactly what I do <laughs> every other day. So I'm literally reading this study thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life. Um, so the study followed... You, you didn't realize you were one of the research Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, no, these were these followed elite athletes, so I don't I don't think I. Oh, okay. Um, the study followed 31 male cyclists, triathletes, and runners, and they compared the athletes' resting me- metabolic race, rate and then compared it to their predicted metabolic rate. Metabolic. Based, metabolic. Yeah. Thank you. No um, On their body size and competi- composition. <laughs> See, now I can't even talk. So, so this, the, this is what happens when we record the podcast in the afternoon, Patrick. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> anyway, keep going. Of the 31 subjects. 20 of them had suppressed blank rates. <laughs> <laughs> metabolic, metabolic. Metabolic, yeah. I'm just messing with you now. Um, and so what they what they wanted to do, or what they wanted to understand, was what factors might contribute to this problem. So they tracked their caloric intake and on, on an hour-by-hour basis for four consecutive days. Mm-hmm. And they found no overall differences in caloric balance between those with normal and suppressed metabolisms. Mm-hmm. which indicates that those with suppressed metabolisms 
Um, it's, the problem wasn't that they weren't eating enough, right? Because they had the same total number of calories, or eating too much. Now, now let's let's be clear real quick. Uh, a, a, a metabolic rate, your metabolic rate, is is how quickly you are burning calories, essentially. Yes. Um, and and your basal metabolic rate, or your BMR, is how much how much your how many calories your body burns as you are just sitting here. So right. you and I right now, as we're sitting here talking, we're burning calories. Right. Not a lot of calories. Certainly not as much as we, as we would be burning if we were having this conversation while running. Right. Um, but but you can actually measure someone's basal metabolic rate. Your basal metabolic rate is something that slows down as you age a little bit, which is one of the reasons why people tend to put on weight as they get a little bit older. Exactly. Um, but um, but if you have a steadier or even higher basal metabolic rate, um, uh, you'll be more energized throughout the course of the day, um, and and it also has some the uh, ramifications for for how well you you store fuel. Um, and and the the lean body mass and all that sort of thing. So anyway. it also has huge ramifications for how well you're able to recover. Yeah, from a workout. Yeah. Um, it, I mean the, the if the furnace isn't burning inside of you, that means there's not much. The, the wheels aren't turning inside. Right. right. Essentially, the the train's not moving. And so so essentially, um, and and again to kind of background the 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 study a little bit more too, the the the. General belief, the general scientific belief, is that if you eat fewer calories, it slows down your basal metabolic rate. Um, now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't eat fewer calories, but but a bo- your body's natural response to your suddenly eating fewer calories is to burn calories more slowly mm-hmm. um, in order to keep you from starving. Obviously, and that is right. Yeah, and that's yeah. Ex- really exactly what they found, but on a day-to-day basis. Right, right. So they found that those with the suppressed metabolism, what was happening was they were working out in the morning. They're not eating until late at night, or like they would eat at breakfast and lunch that oftentimes wasn't even equal to their dinner in terms of their caloric intake. Mm-hmm. So throughout the day, their body's saying, well, wait a minute, we need to slow this train down because right. we don't know when we're going to get this, these calories again. Right. And that had some pretty big impact on how well they were able to recover mm-hmm. throughout the day. Right. I mean, if you think about it, the human body and the human mind was designed to survive in a tribe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're... Don't know when your next meal is going to be. Your body naturally kind of slows everything down and says, let's space this out. Let's mm-hmm. figure out how we want to allocate resources. Mm-hmm. And specifically what it really did is for those with the lower metabolism, they had a much lower rate of testosterone and much higher uh, counts of cortisol, mm-hmm. um, which really hindered their ability to recover from a workout. Right. And it really increased their chance of overtraining. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating because, one, that's exactly the schedule I do. Mm-hmm. I eat a very light breakfast, kind of pack a lunch of PBJ or something, mm-hmm. and then just crush the dinner time before bed. That's, and they that's, found, a, that's, a, that's a very typical American diet. Yeah, and they found that that really hinders your ability to recover throughout the day, and that really hurts your, your energy level throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing that's interesting. These same researchers did a very similar study of female endurance athletes mm-hmm. in December, and they found a lot of the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, hourly, hourly energy deficits were also associated with hormonal disturbances in the women and menstrual dysfunction, mm-hmm. even when total caloric balance is very similar. So just because you're eating the same number of calories throughout the day, it doesn't, you know, when, when add up in some, mm-hmm. the issue is when you are, you know, going through some period of intermittent fasting, we'll call right. it, right. in the morning or, or afternoon. Right. So my big takeaway was that for me personally, I need to do a better job of distributing how that food intake, how I take in food throughout the day. Right. Smooth out, smooth out the spikes and, mm-hmm. and the dips mm-hmm. because... Making bumps, not spikes. Exactly, right? <laughs> um, and that, that could be something as simple as an extra 400 calories in the morning. Yeah. Like we're not talking a turkey here. 
Yeah. You know, but just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the morning to help your body know there's still enough, you know, that's going to yeah. be thrown in the furnace here for you to burn. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 so I, I grew up in the 1990s and I've talked about this a little bit before and, and, and I read all the, the, the magazine articles in Runner's World and everywhere else and, and that was when we were still viewing food through the, 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 the fat and carbohydrate paradigm. Yep. Um, and so, you know, uh, high carbohydrates, low fats, low protein, essentially, mm-hmm. was, was, was the diet that I was raised on. No attention paid to the degree of processedness, um, no attention paid to, 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 right. to, to protein as a macronutrient, anything else like that, right? Um, and uh, um, one of the first times that I really began to change that way of, of thinking and eating was about eh, less than 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago. I went to see a local nutritionist. Um, and she upped my protein intake a little bit, not so much that it was like through the roof, but I mean, it was literally like virtually nothing. Um, and, uh, and so, so she, she made it up, you know, 15 to 20% of my calories. And then more importantly, she, she spread my eating out throughout the course of the day. Um, and it's when I was teaching high school. And so I was able to do it throughout the course of the day. I was able to say, okay, after this class and at this time, and I was, I was able to kind of rigidly schedule, okay, every two and a half hours, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to eat this. I was able to find a routine around it. Um, and, and I, I actually lost a lot of weight and was kind of shocked at how effective it was that I, I changed some of the content of what I ate, but more than that, I changed the timing of what I ate. Um, and that had a pretty profound impact on my, my body composition. Yeah, and that's something, uh, at least for me personally, I don't always think about. Oh, my energy levels too, by the way. Right. And so that to me was what I found about this, found uh, found so fascinating about this study was just how important the timing was Mm -hmm. because your body is almost constantly recalibrating itself throughout the day. Yeah. We think in terms of calendar days because that's how we organize our time. Mm -hmm. But your body is almost on a continuous clock or... or, so it, it was very interesting. So the, one of the big takeaways, as you mentioned, was, you know, you got almost time it throughout the day to have snacks, you know, maybe five smaller meals instead mm-hmm. of one ginormous dinner and then mm-hmm. a few, a breakfast yeah. here and a lunch there. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, too, is it, it did also seem to confirm that you do need to kind of pop in some calories shortly after exercising. Because mm-hmm. the real key is you just don't want to be in a caloric deficit for long Mm-hmm. Or, or to be in a significant deficit, you right. know, like 400 calories or so, right. which, like I said, is like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, that's not... Or a bottle of Ultra Fuel. Yeah. Uh, even, though, even though they don't make Ultra Fuel anymore. Too bad. Um, very good. Um, well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. And, and there's a lot more research about, about timing and nutrition and all sorts of things. We should probably quit shying away from that topic. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, over the summer here after the Boston Marathon, we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll maybe grab the bull by the horns and actually do that. So, um, final words, Patrick. Uh, not too much. Uh, can't wait for the uh, final week of tapering. Um, I've always said I'm I'm best better at tapering than I am at running. So, <laughs> I, so. I've I've really between now and Monday, I've got it covered. Very good, very <laughs> good. Uh, well, good luck, man. Thanks everybody for joining us. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Uh, look us up on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. You can look up our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at ITL Coaching or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, there's my wife, the travel agent, recently returned from a familiarization trip to Kauai. Uh, Facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. Drop her a line at Casey Travel Planner at gmail.com. That's K A C I E Travel Planner at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, CaseyTravelPlanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. See you next time.